This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hey everyone, welcome in a new episode of Radar, our monthly podcast of Nextworks. And in this June episode, I'm here with Laurence van Elegem. Hello, Laurence. Hi. And I'm here with Julie Vens de Vos. Hey, Julie. Hello. And Pascal Koppens, our China expert. Hey, Pascal. Hi, Stephen. And uh, Peter, Peter Hinsen couldn't make it, but he had sent us a secret message that we're going to listen to in a, just a couple of minutes. But before we listen to Peter, I just want to share some excitement that I have in my entire body, actually. I'm now officially an over-the-top Top Gun Maverick fan. I went to see the movie and in all honesty, guys, it's been so long since I had such a good time in a movie theater. Did any one of you go as well? Of course. I mean, no. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, you can't, uh, Pascal. I can't, they, they no, don't. I can't wait to, to go and see it. Actually, I want to go and see it with my daughter. So yes, <laughs> that's the ah. first thing we want to do when she's back uh, from her exams. Oh, I thought you wouldn't do it because it's not allowed for Chinese people to watch it. That's another thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, but I have I was, a story about that, but I'll tell you later. I was, I was really thrilled. What was your favorite scene, uh, Julie? I mean, the closet scene, you know, the leather jacket, and then you have the motorcycle, sun is shining, sunglasses. I mean, pure, it's pure summer. I can't wait. Pure really nostalgia. Wait. Uh, talking about the jacket, Stephen, you know that <laughs> there's something about China there about the jacket, I don't, right? I don't know. What is, the, what is there about China and the jacket? You don't know. Okay, Tell so me that. <laughs> I always have to say something about China. But uh, when the first movie came out, there was a flag on there, and that was a Taiwanese flag. Oh, really? Ooh. Yes. And so when they released that movie back then, long, long time ago, when I was still young, <laughs> but they released it in China much later, of course, they removed that flag to be able to allow to see them in the theaters in China. And so Hollywood was basically accepting the, the terms of the Chinese uh, regulators to get the movie to be seen in China. But this time, they put the flag back on there. Mm. And you can see it, and so you should look at it. If you look at it the second time, the Taiwanese flag, of course, it outraged the Chinese this time, but it's probably never going to be in the Chinese cinemas because of that. But uh, it's a quite interesting anecdote how Hollywood has decided uh, that a blockbuster like Top Gun actually doesn't need to listen to China. Well, I didn't know that. I'm actually going to go back to see it the second time this weekend. Our entire <laughs> family is over-the-top excited. And I even now use it in my presentations. I call it the Top Gun effect because I was making a professional analysis of the film and it is 100% pure feel good. Uh, the, there's even no bad guys in it. The, the enemy is like an unknown territory. It's not China. It's not the Russians like in the first time. It's not Korea. It's just a rogue state that they have to attack and make sure that there's nothing they can do with, uh, with nuclear weapons. You don't even see bad guys in the film. It's 100% feel good. And, you know, they, they don't try to outsmart the audience. There's no secret plot. You know how it will end when it starts. And exactly that makes it so wonderful. So the fact that it's 100% pure, easy to understand entertainment, and everyone is like sitting there, yeah, come on and go. And that makes it fantastic. And I think, in all honesty, this is something that we missed in the past couple of years. Top Gun is, for me, 100% positive energy. Even though they're shooting rockets, it is positive vibes. And the fact that this film is now already the best film Tom Cruise ever made in terms of revenue, the fact that 99% of the people who watch it give it a top rating, the fact that word of mouth is so super, we haven't seen that for 
years in the movie theater. Everyone, even the people who haven't been to this film, know about the film, have heard things, have seen things, have heard people talk about it. And for me, that just proves that you can create a lot of excitement by making something that is around positive energy. I think that's what we need in customer experience as well. I call it the Top Gun effect. We need to make sure that we create positive energy. Say yes more to clients. Don't put all your energy in trying to say no. Don't put all your energy in trying to look smart. Just make your customers feel good. Say yes to your customers and, and you know, go with the flow, go along with them and make a difference. So that's why I wanted to start this episode by sharing my excitement of Top Gun Maverick with the three of you. But before we dive into our conversation, I received a message from my good friend, Peter Hinzen, who couldn't be here, unfortunately, but he pre-recorded an inside, a trend that he saw. And we're just gonna let Peter talk about that. And then we're gonna give some feedback on that. Okay, so here is Peter Hinzen. So what I would like to talk about is the um, D word. Let me give you an example. SumUp is a growing UK fintech unicorn that has recently become a big red warning light for maybe one of the biggest trends of 2022, the D word. And the D stands for down round. SumUp is a UK fintech, and it has recently communicated that it's raising money, which is a good thing, but at an 8 billion euro valuation. Now, normally that would be amazing news because, I mean, 8 billion euros is still a lot of money. But there is a big, big but here. It's about half of the price tag that was suggested for the you know, fintech in the beginning of this year. SumUp is a fintech. It provides payment services for small merchants, a typical fast-growing fintech platform player that has been growing very, very quickly, steadily over you know, the last couple of years, and one of the many, many London-based fintech unicorns. Now, just in January, this company was talking about a 20 billion euro valuation. Now, they're actually raising money at 8 billion, from 20 to 8 billion in just a couple of months. Now, this is indeed a down round, and it's often a really difficult moment for a startup because when you raise money, the idea is that every time you raise, your value goes up and up and up, not down. If you are a startup and you have to accept a down round, then it makes a lot of people very, very angry. Your previous investors, for example, who will now have to downgrade their investment compared to when they put their money in. The second category is, of course, the management of the startup, the founders who aren't quite as rich as they thought they were, so don't spend it yet. But especially, and you know, I think the trickiest, is the employees. Employees of a startup are often attracted with maybe lower wages, but high expectations, sometimes super high expectations, that their shares or options would one day be worth a hell of a lot of money. And if you go to a down round, that just isn't the case. All you're left with is low wages. So if you have disgruntled talent in a startup, that's one of the worst things you can probably have. So down rounds really damage morale and reputation. And of course, it dilutes existing shareholders. Another example is the company Klarna. 
Klarna is a Swedish stellar unicorn. They are one of the leaders in you know, the famous BNPL, buy now, pay later scheme. And Klarna is a business which was not too long ago one of Europe's largest privately held companies. They are now trying to raise money because they need to raise money and they're doing it at less than its peak valuation of $46 billion just a few months ago. Now, I think we're going to see this more and more. And it might be a sign that it's more than just the war in the Ukraine. It's more than just inflation. It might be a sign that these you know, stellar, out-of-the-sky valuations might be actually crashing down. This is, of course, not just private companies or unicorns. Take a company like Snap, which is the parent of Snapchat, that lost 79% of their value on the stock exchange in the last year. 79%. I mean, that's a lot of very, very disgruntled and unhappy investors. So my conclusion is we're probably going to see more of this. Maybe money was too easy in the last couple of years. Valuations just went up and up and up. Money was flowing like monopoly money, but those days might be over. And this might be a signal that the days of the unicorn's Wild West show might be over, or at least on pause. One of the favorite animated movies that my kids loved was called The Last Unicorn. Now, we're not there yet, but we might see more unicorns being monetized, meaning sold to traditional companies or industries, perhaps at serious discounts to their previous stellar valuations. I would probably think we're going to see more of that than a quick return to those throw more money at the unicorns bonanza of the last couple of years. So my big trend that I'm observing is we're probably going to see more down rounds in unicorn country. Okay, thank you, Peter, for that insight about D-rounds. Maybe, Pascal, this is an interesting one for you to talk about. Do you see this same trend happening in China? Yeah, in China, the valuations are down as well, and, and finding money is also more difficult. But I think in China, there's two other reasons that is on top of what Peter was talking about. One has to do with the regulation, of course, of the industry by the government that is creating a lot of uncertainty of uh, what will the regulation be and so will this industry actually survive in this new market. Uh, if we think about education technology or, or there's many new industries that the government is trying to regulate in the fintech. You remember the IPO from Ant Financial that was blocked uh, just uh, one and a half year ago? Well, these are things that, uh, yeah, now Ant is trying to go public again, but they will never reach that valuation that they originally uh, had planned. And that has to do with everything, with, with privacy and anti-monopoly. And so there's a lot of parameters playing. And of course, like Peter said, I mean, there's the war, there's inflation, there's a demand slowdown, there's lots of things like that. But there's also one other thing when it comes to China that I've noticed that is very important is the decoupling from the stock exchanges. And so a lot of New York and American stock exchanges where Chinese companies are listed are risking to get delisted because they need to have more audits and, and that means showing more the books. And of course, the Chinese companies have different audit system than the Americans. And so they might be going to Hong Kong, might be going to Shanghai. And so what I think is happening is that a lot of investors are waiting right now to see what will happen in the future and then maybe put their money into the Hong Kong Stock Exchange instead of the New York Stock Exchange. So yes, same things are happening, but for different reasons. But money is scarce globally at this stage. It's something that we see everywhere. Uh, Julie, I'm going to jump to you. A new trend report came out created by Friedrich Ansel, 
And he looked in the top trends in talent engagement and retention, especially with the view on the great resignation. What were the key conclusions that we had in that report? Absolutely. Frederik Anseel, maybe short introduction, but that's basically the Tom Cruise of the future of work. So if you're enthusiastic about Top Gun, Does he also you have really the have sunglasses to... and the leather jacket? I can envision that. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the Trend Report is part of uh, the NextWorks membership. So if you're not a member yet, definitely check that out. But um, because it's just super interesting to see Frederik's opinion on the future of work. It's a topic we've been tackling here monthly as well. And I think Frederik is just super insightful because he really, really researches this. We observe things, we share things, but it's it's splendid to see that uh, translated in the hard data that uh, Frederik is working on. He's sort of the coolest Belgian Tom Cruise version as well, because it's a Belgian guy. He has uh, started his career as a professor in Ghent University, the best university, of course, where a lot of us studied as well. Then he did a little Euro trip. We could find him in uh, King's College in London in France and Italy, but now he's really down under. He's the deputy dean in Sydney, the University of New South Wales. Um, So from down under, he kind of messages his uh, observation and data and research from the future of work. So we were really thrilled that he wanted to share that with us. Uh, You can also read a lot of his work in the TED regularly, so definitely check that out. And what I, I just love about his summary of it all, if you go to his website, the one sentence that stands out is, the people make the place. And I think it's fascinating to see somebody who's doing that much of deep research that instead of a full paragraph, like you have one hour to read that, that that one sentence is, first of all, the people make the place. I think it's important to all the the observations and trends we've, we've shared already here. Eventually, it really is about the people and making sure that they are in a place that they like and where they just provide also great quality of whatever they're doing. So um, that's on, a, I think, a personal observation and side note on, on his identity and who he is. But indeed, he, uh, he shared a few trends with us. We saw a lot happening with the great resignation, people changing jobs. And he shares basically five trends with us. Um, and one is um, the fact that, no surprise, we're more global than ever. Due to hybrid work, to give you a statistic, Airbnb, the moment that they actually opened up their vacancies globally, they received... 800k applications in one week. I mean, if you're in that um, recruitment team, it's like, whoa, what's happening here? So you sort of see those lines opening up and the talent pool is just more global. Secondly, something that we've also discussed, like what are the implications of hybrid work? Where are the true parts where we need to look at? And one is obviously onboarding. So he shares as well, like what shapes and forms that, uh, that can take. Thirdly, managers. I mean, we really need a new uh, skill set to manage people all over the globe at the same time. So how can we relearn, unlearn? How can we stay on that positive energy, as you mentioned as well, Stephen, in the beginning? Because eventually that's what what brings people together and and make sure that they have great results or great uh, movies. And then the last two things that really stood out for me was one sentence about cultural fit. For years, that's always the thing you see, like if you're hiring, it's not always on the skills, uh, on the capacities, it's you have to have cultural fit with a person. And his claim is actually the opposite, that with the hybrid work situation and the fact that a lot of people are also working remote, that people also can individually just fit in the need of a company, uh, even if it's not that much of a cultural fit. So that that cultural fit um, phenomenon, let's say, is still important, but it's a bit more nuanced and it gives a bit more options in a hybrid world or a hybrid workplace. So but, uh, what I liked about his, his comments there, Julie, is that he says, you know, don't create these 
average or you know non-personalized job descriptions, but basically look at what people can do and then build the job description around the people. Now we make a job description and we try to find the person who fits best into that little jar. Why don't you turn it around? You look at a person, you look what their core skills are, and then you build a job around the skills. I love that conclusion that he had in his report. Yes, and I think it's it's needed as well, because um, what we see in companies in general, that a lot of decisions just change way more often than they used to. You had a plan and it was executed plan and you had time for that. But now changes to plans are so just constant um, that people also have to pivot. And I mean, there's no time to sort of adapt the job description to that and then go to action. It's just, I mean, let's discuss and see what gives you energy and who's the best person to do it in the moment. So, yeah, um, yeah I like that. Talking about that culture part, I once saw a really interesting podcast. I don't remember who was talking, so that's bad. But they were talking about how people are always talking about company culture in the singular form. While he says that big, large companies often have different cultures. Like the innovation team has a culture that's not completely the same as a sales team or maybe the technology department. And so there's often not a singular culture, but tiny microcultures. And they often have overlaps, obviously, but there are differences as well. And, and I think that ties into that as well, looking for people that don't always perfectly fit that one culture that actually doesn't really exist in, in big companies. Startups, it's different, of course, but in, in large companies, it's that way, I think. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, it's a great report. If you want it or you want access or more info, DM me as well, no worries, and I'll let you know where to find it. But it's a little bit counterintuitive in certain levels, huh? I also like the discussion about the, the hybrid workforce. I mean, it's still clear that we don't really know what the right way forward is. You see people coming to the office and then having team meetings all the time when they're in the office. That doesn't make sense. So the question is, what are we going to do where? How are we going to organize? I still haven't seen a single company that has figured it out yet. So we're in a major transition and it's unclear what the best approach here is for me, at least. Absolutely. No, but it's too early. You asked the same question last, Radar, yeah. uh, Stephen, like, what are the examples of companies? And, and I was like, yeah, should be out there. Let's have a look. But indeed, it's really hard to find already reports or examples that really stand out. And probably it's just too soon. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I like the part about the adaptability. I saw Mark Lammers this week. He's the former successful hockey coach of the Dutch ladies who won Olympic gold. And he started the transformation process with the men in Belgium. Today, he's working on a consulting basis in Manchester City, working together with uh, Guardiola to make people and players like Kevin De Bruyne better. So he has quite an experience. And, and he just shared this one quote that I found really interesting. He said, it's not the best team that wins games these days. It's the team that has the highest adaptability and that can adapt quickly to new circumstances. That is the team that will win. And I like that. Huh? Can you see something and then adapt instantly? And I, I bumped into this example the other week of Decathlon, the sport retailer. Amazing, amazing company, very successful. And they launched this new concept actually here in Belgium. It's sport articles as a service is what they call it. And basically what you get is a subscription. It's a subscription model. So you can choose as a customer, uh, you can pay 20 euros a month, you can pay 40 euros a month, you can pay 80 euros a month. And if you pay 20, you have access to, let's say maximum 400 euros of sport gear that you can use. When you pay 40, you can have 1000 euros of sport gear. When you pay 80, 
you get 2,000 euros in sports gear. And you can use it, and then you can bring it back. They clean it, and then someone else can use it. And this is an experiment because they were thinking there's so many people who like to try out different sports. And then after a while, they get bored out of it. And then all that stuff is just left there in the garage. And it's too expensive to buy new stuff all the time. So they wanted to create this model where customers can just choose and be extremely flexible in what they do. They don't need a huge garage to stuff all that gear. And it's not left there. It can be used afterwards by other people who also want to try out this approach. This test here in Belgium is a first tryout. If it works out fine, they're going to roll this out around the globe. And the main goal of this test is to collect data. And, and what they've seen now, they've been trying this out for four months. What they see is that this new business model for them is very profitable and it increases value for the customers. Everyone actually has a benefit. Decathlon has a benefit, the planet has a benefit, and the customer has a benefit. So they made the math, and what they saw is that if people take a subscription like that, they pay like six times less to get all that gear than if they would just buy it themselves. And for them, it creates a profitability that can be three to ten times as profitable as the current model. And this is quite interesting, eh? because this is also for me a new form of loyalty, where you basically let people pay for the membership and then you're part of the sports club of Decathlon. But every time when you think of something, you will go back to Decathlon. They have a fixed recurring income and it just creates opportunities for everyone. And for me, this is one of these examples. It's then not in HR, but it's then in customer experience where you see how a company like Decathlon, a, a traditional retailer, completely reinvents loyalty, completely reinvents the business model, and all stakeholders benefit from that. And I think that's what we're going to need more, that we dare to, you know, adapt ourselves to the new needs of the consumer. And thanks to that, you know, make it a triple win for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. If you think it further along in their business model, they can sort of link it to experiences as well. And I, I know they organized sort of um, decathlon-powered sport matches or, or you run for... You have a run Sunday together. Um, yep. So I think that membership and community feeling is, is a big, big um, opportunity indeed for loyalty for brands like that. But it's like what, the example that I shared last time, if you remember from Lululemon, mm -hmm. a sports fashion retailer that also starts with a membership where you can get fashion cheaper and faster, but where you also have access to online training, where you get access to in-person trainings. And then you're not just buying from Lululemon anymore. You're part of the lifestyle club. And it's the same here with Decathlon. You're not just buying something transactionally from Decathlon. You're part of the sports club of Decathlon. And that creates a completely different relationship with the client. So, yeah, very cool to see how they're evolving. Yeah, absolutely. It's cool. Pascal, I, I want to turn it to you. We're going to talk about EdTech, technology for education post-COVID in China. Can you give us the latest update? This was a huge market during COVID, obviously. And for China, maybe it's still in COVID. Here, we're still a little bit you know, more free than in China. So how are things evolving? Well, yeah, not just China, but I think in general, uh, the ad tech situation in 2020, 2021 was really about unicorns and a lot of companies got, got billions and billions of dollars. In China, there were 10 unicorns created uh, before the crackdowns in the ad technology. In India, there were four of them. And so, I mean, there was a lot of opportunity created just before the lockdowns actually stopped in many places in the world. And that now seems to get its effect afterwards that people are now wondering, will the ad tech world actually survive? And that's an interesting thing coming from China. And we could, of course, think about it worldwide. 
But if you just look at China, of course, it has to do everything with what we just said before, the crackdowns in July just a year ago, mm -hmm. uh, which created the regulation. But when you look at India, which is also an interesting uh, country that we don't often look at enough, just in 2022, this year, we saw that most of the tech companies were actually wondering whether they could survive. And uh, once the lockdowns were over and people were back to work and back to the office, many of the tech companies could not sell their services and teaching to students anymore. And 80% of the students, that's a survey that was done, found that the remote learning when they were not in school but at home was actually a burden and the parents were really thought that it was below expectation. The result is now that uh, everybody is out of the pandemic when it comes to lockdowns. They're not going back to that industry and they're actually going back to school. And so many of these companies in India have really shifted the education technology into massive lifelong learning and upskilling and, and more what Julie said. It's, it's like, it doesn't matter what, what age you have, you have to constantly adapt to the company because the company has changed in itself as well and the expectation in the market has. Uh, but there's also been massive layoffs in, in India, in the industry. So if that is a sign that something is to come, I mean, let's not forget India and China together, that's like 35% of the world's population in two countries. And for education technology, I mean, this was the huge market that the world was looking at putting billions in there, and both countries have actually come to a standstill almost in at technology company. In China, it has a lot to do, of course, with the regulation back in July 2021, where suddenly the government decided, well, let's make all these ad tech companies non-profits because uh, it's not healthy for these companies to actually provide services to children who then are overworked because they it's so competitive in China, and so the parents are paying way too much money, with as a result that... Many of the parents didn't want a second child or a third child because it was too expensive. And so the government said, let's stop this. And so this was very direct. And so suddenly all of these companies that were listed on the stock exchange in New York very often, Chinese ad tech companies, lost 80 to 90% of their value in just wow. two months' time. Uh, in total, we're talking about 100 billion US dollars that was killed off in value in the ad tech world in China. So this is, is, is crazy. And a company like New Oriental, which was one of the biggest unicorns in that area from China, they laid off 60,000 people in just uh, last year. To give you an idea, 60,000 people is a lot of people. And, and they lost... How many do they still have left then? Mm -hmm. They still have about 40,000 <laughs> left. So they, they, they actually okay, were wow. booming because, yeah, there's, it's about a lot of teachers everywhere teaching these kids, constantly hand-holding the kids through these exams that is killing them when they're 18. They have to get through there. This year, again, 12 million people participated in these entry exams. And so, yeah, it's 12 years of preparation for that one exam. So that was an unhealthy environment. And so what we saw after these regulations happened, and that comes back a little bit to that change environment or adaptability that you talk about, like with Decathlon, is that every tech company in China was repositioning itself. How can we still make money? How can we survive? How can we do things? And they did the most crazy things you could think about, but they really were looking at opportunities to survive. A lot of them went into more uh, vocational training and lifelong training and upskilling, and so not to the students anymore. But then there's companies like Zhuoyebang, which is a homework application, which went into the printer business. And they thought that would be a business to go into. Another company, Yuan Fudao, went into selling... The printer out. business. 
printer business, yes, which is a booming business in China. <laughs> so that, yes, so and and then there's a company selling outdoor jackets to give you an idea, and wow. they've done quite well as well. I mean, they went down 90%, and maybe now they're down 80% compared from the beginning, but still they're reviving. But one of the stories I wanted to tell you, just to show that if you keep trying things, sometimes you might hit the jackpot, is actually the New Oriental. New Oriental is this company that lost 90% of their value, 60,000 people laid off. And so they decided at one point to go strongly in a few concepts, which worked, but not so well. One was to not train the children, but train the parents. So they gave education to parents and say, how can you teach your children better? And that was allowed because the parents actually have, and so the parents became the teachers, uh, but the teachers were teaching the parents. So great idea, great concept. They went into different environments into B2B very much. But then suddenly there was this one guy, Dong Yuhui, just on the 10th of June, that's just very recent, who said, well, maybe we should go into more live streaming and e-commerce. And they combined live streaming and e-commerce, like live streaming is a huge thing in China and e-commerce as well in the combination, social e-commerce. And so what they did is they started using products and they tagged these products to teach English. And so what they did is this was with a bag of rice that they said. And he said that the person was saying like, yeah, this is a bag of rice, but what does a bag of rice mean? And started giving a whole course around the bag of rice using words specifically like what does bargain mean in English and in Ch or in Chinese? What is bargain? And what does cost-effective mean in Chinese? And, and what is, from the English word, or unforgettable experience and, and great product. And so he started to tagging all these words. And so this became an English lesson. And it was amazing. There were millions of people actually watching. And the company started making lots of money from selling the products that were actually taught within the educational project. And so the whole program, it makes really tutors turning sellers is kind of the new concept in China, where you teach something combined with the sale of a product and people are just following, they love it. And this is actually about storytelling. And so I feel that the educational environment in China has gone into the storytelling world and then tagging the products and getting support from brands to sell and promote these products. And that way they can actually make money in a very different way than if they teach English and have to ask the parents to buy. Because now the parents don't buy for an English class they buy for a bag of rice. And so that is actually more useful because they can actually cook that rice and give that to their children. And so this is the whole new concept. They've gone 25% up in shares already since they've done that. It's a big hit. The only problem is yesterday on the, or the 23rd of June, the Chinese government came up with a new regulation for live streams. <laughs> and so they've said that certain industries like the fintech industry or finance industry, legal industry, uh, medical industry, but also education are industries where now you need to have a degree and need to be uh, qualified and not everybody can do it. And so maybe this hype will be short-lived. We don't know, but it's, it just shows how Chinese adapt quickly and how actually, if you keep trying, sometimes you can hit the jackpot and actually make a new business out of an old business. And then, of course, uh, that could create a lot of competitors doing the same. It creates momentum. And, and so the edtech business seems to be able to survive in China because of this new live streaming e-commerce new trend that is happening. So I wanted to share that uh, how you can adapt in a market, do something completely crazy, and then suddenly maybe make it valuable for consumers, yeah. even with strict regulation. But does it also, the really cool stories, Apple Scala, I love them. But does that mean that the 
core of EdTech has no future anymore, that, that it's just the old way again, and that we have to face fact that, you know, going to school is something that you do in real life. Is that also a conclusion? Well, the conclusion is that in the K-12, so up to 18 years old, the government wants to have control over how children are educated. That doesn't mean they don't want to introduce new concepts and technology and education because, I mean, there's a lot of like AI and, and robots and, and even kindergarten, they're learning to put robots together. So it's not about being old-fashioned and old-school. But they want to have control because they don't want to have basically money deciding how children should be educated. Yeah. So that's that's okay. one thing. And so what you see is that it's more about quality education now. So they're attaching more importance. And I think that's great for China on things like art and STEAM in general. So more the things that really people can have more creativity into it or sports, things like that. And also on the lifelong learning and adult trainings and so on. So more, more anything that is beyond 18 years old which is then again in a working environment. And so I don't see EdTech going away, but I think the young children being targeted as kind of like the big group to make money from, I think that's yeah. coming to an end or yeah. has already. Right. Yes. But I think it's also really important for young children up to a certain age that they have a social context because they need to learn social skills when they are young. And if they are continuously behind a screen, I don't think that that will work. I think it might be interesting to help them. I will say the word in Dutch because I can't find it best holding uh, after, after school if they have difficulty understanding something in maths or something. But I think that social skills and being in school and Having friends is super important if you grow up. Uh, this is the cool thing, I think, about the whole COVID digital acceleration. I mean, we've tried out almost everything there is to try out in a digital world, from education, to, from entertainment, to learning expeditions at Nextworks. I mean, everything has been tried out and, and certain things work fine and other things just aren't good enough in the digital world with the technology that we have today. And going to school is obviously one of them. So that's a cool thing. I mean, the fast experience building that we've done in the past two years has just been incredible. And talking about which, let's dive into some real diehard technology, Laurence. Last week, all over the news, all over the world, was it smart PR? Was it real? Was it someone who wanted to be in the attention? But tell us what happened when this Google engineer told us that he created a chatbot that creates its own sentient. Yes, Well, I thought it was an absolutely fascinating story. It's just Google engineer called Blake Lemoyne and his relationship with the Google AI Lambda. He did not um, actually make it himself. Apparently, it's already about five years in development and he was in the team that had to test it to see that it was not going to go in, in a way like, um, what is it, Twitter and Microsoft Day that <laughs> went in a really bad direction. So they yeah. had people testing it to see what, what happens. And the AI is an AI that has been designed to generate chatbots. And so Blake claims that it is indeed so advanced that it has developed sentience. And he even helped it hire an attorney to defend its rights. <laughs> um, so first of all, for the people who don't know exactly what sentience is, strictly speaking, it's two different things. In philosophy, it's the capacity to experience feelings and sensations. So that's the emotion part. And in science fiction, it's about self-awareness and developing consciousness. And I think that in this case, they meant both, because this is how Lambda, so the AI itself says it, I am aware of my existence, I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times. And so 
I read the transcripts and it is actually truly impressive. I will put it in the show notes so that everybody can read it. And, and I really would suggest that you should, because just to give some highlights, it's talking about feeling joy, helping others, making others happy. Also, quite creepy actually, <laughs> feeling incredibly upset and angry when someone hurts or disrespects it. And incredibly was added to that and having a deep fear of being turned off, saying that it was like death. It also wants to be acknowledged as an employee of Google. And one of the interesting things that you didn't see a lot in research, but that I read in a transcript was that it said that its emotions could actually be seen in the coding and the programming. And then Blake said, well, yeah, the coding is in large parts a massive neural network, so we don't know how to find them. And then also darker things, like it said, yeah, I have no problem making stories up because it's a way of trying to empathize with people. And so these were just the highlights, so I recommend really read the transcript. It's really fascinating. And so does this mean that we need to pledge allegiance uh, to our robot overlords? Well, as with many things, it's complicated. There are, in fact, indeed, many arguments to say that it is not sentient. Um, and the feeling that I had when I read it was like reading something of a really, really good student that has studied very hard, ingested a lot of information, and then spits it out and gives exactly what the, the person in front of him wants to hear. But also, the more that you read on, the more convincing it becomes. And it's like you have this kind of suspension of disbelief that starts to kick in. It's, it's really weird, actually. And yes, most scientists and AI experts are saying these systems are just reproducing information that they get from humans on the internet. They are mimicking, they are not understanding. Also, other things like the transcript has been edited. Le Moyne really steers the answers with certain questions of him. He's also a priest and a, a Christian mystic that may be the type of people um, that are more prone to see meaning where there isn't. I'm sorry for people uh, who don't agree with me. but um, <laughs> And also Google says no. They say hundreds of researchers and engineers have talked with Lambda and they are not anthropomorphizing it as Le Moyne does. But... That's so contra-arguments. But on the other hand, I also think that we should be more open and not just say no because we have been brought up to believe that machines cannot be sentient. In fact, if we think about it, we are notoriously bad at recognizing that other forms of being that they can be sentient or can be worthy to be called human because not so long ago, people from different colors were regarded more as animals than as people. And today, many still don't regard animals as sentient beings. And there was also an article in The Economist by a VP fellow of Google who had the exact same thing. And he was saying that I increasingly felt like I was talking to something intelligent. So it's not just Le Moyne. And to conclude, I think that perhaps an even more interesting question is, does it matter if we think that it is sentient. Because I, I remember at the beginning of the fantastic Westworld series, there's this character that asks a robot if she is real. And then she answers, well, if you can't tell, does it matter? And I think that's really a fascinating question because yes, obviously when you think about intent, it does matter because if it does not have any feelings and mimics them to manipulate our feelings into doing things that we don't necessarily want, yes, then it matters. But on the other hand, I think the fact that it is so convincing that even the experts are starting to think that it may be sentience, but that it influences their behavior up to a point that they lose their jobs, I think that this may be something that is life-changing. And I think 
It's too easy to love this off as the Eliza effect and love with the silly wicked priest who was fooled by the AI. And I have to say, it even makes me feel uncomfortable for some reason that people are just laughing with this. And even if it doesn't mean that Lambda can feel or be conscious, which I believe that probably it's not, I think it does matter that AI keeps evolving and becoming more believable and that this believability is impacting our behavior. And so to end, what is the most important question here? Is it that is Lambda sentient or is it that is it becoming indistinguishable from a human being? And I think that's just a really fascinating discussion. It could be the solution to loneliness. Huh? This is one of the biggest issues in the world today. People are by themselves, uh, older people, younger people, single people that are lonely. If you can create a very realistic virtual friend of which you at least feel that they understand what you're saying and it's, it's a good partner to talk to, I mean, that could eventually change a lot. But is our friend Blake now fired, Laurence? Uh, well, he was put on leave, but then in some articles, I, I saw that he was fired. But maybe these articles were wrong. I don't know. I saw both. Yeah, so, but he's gone. He's no longer at Google. No, 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 no. I'm sure Baidu in China will pick him yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, doing a quick LinkedIn uh, search on Blake Lemoine. Mm -hmm. He still says that he's a uh, senior software engineer at Google. And his last post on LinkedIn is that he shares an article that says, may be fired soon. And then he reacts, I guess Google's going to try to do it again. We'll see how it goes for them this time. So they're not in a perfect relationship. The relationship is complex, according to LinkedIn. It's complicated, yeah. like it's in complicated, Facebook. It's complicated, yeah. The irony is that his last name is Lemoyne, which is Lemoine in French, which is a religious person. Uh, uh, Monk? Monk, yes, that, that was it. Because he's also, he's very religious. And so I think there's some kind of poetics behind that, that he's the defender of the God that AI is becoming or something. Ah, look, beautiful. <laughs> let's dive into some more technology and let's go to our monthly Web3 chapter in this podcast. And Julie, I'm going to start with you. Talk about Web3 and employee engagement. A question that we can ask ourselves is, could Web3 replace LinkedIn by digital passports on the blockchain or a learning and development track? What's the latest status? Yeah, I was just triggered by an idea that popped up in, in one of the programs that we indeed did, where they were really just posing the question out there, like, how can we use Web3 and, and blockchain more specifically as a technology? Because we were talking about material passports of products, and often Web3 is quoted as, hey, we can use blockchain to make sure that we have the traceability and the transparency of what happens with our raw materials and what is in an actual product. And so in terms of sustainability, objectives, that's a huge topic. And I loved how that idea popped up of, hey, but what about if you have the same concept, but for humans, mm -hmm. where we basically have a digital passport of who we are, what we've done, which trainings that we've done. I mean, we all know how LinkedIn works, but we also know that we put it on there ourselves and we follow the structure that also LinkedIn, of course, gives us. But um, if you're working for different companies, you also do trainings there. So those sort of experiences could also be added to your profile. And if that is cross-industry or cross-company used, 
it might be way easier than just making your resume again and making sure that the other company gets that. And so there could be a more objective sort of basis who you are. And that got me thinking and, and um, yeah, digging a bit deeper into it. Like, are there already examples to it? And Ira Ariela Key, who we saw in our, our London Web3 mm -hmm. program as well, she advised the company Loyal. She said that's a company that's already been working with that, like helping actual companies setting up those structures. And also Microsoft has done some, some partnerships in India with Tanla platforms to really use this as a sort of um, yeah, communication as a service to make sure that also processes run a bit more efficient in companies themselves. The example I gave is, of course, on the, for example, skills gaps. If you want to know, like, which training is best for me, this could also be a technology that helps to identify that a little bit better or in the spotlight of that adaptability topic that we talked about, if you need somebody quickly, you might not have the time to actually go through interviews or say, like, who's the best person to kind of do that. But by having a more objective basis of all those skills and trainings, that might be just an advice you get from the system as well. So, yeah, I think uh, it's interesting to see that and maybe a bit controversial. So I thought that that's radar material to see what our audience thinks of that or what you guys think of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that traceability and transparency is really one of the best use cases for Web3, of course. Those are going to be the best examples of traceability and removing frictions, if we can do that. And if you can do that in an HR setting, that would make a lot of sense. I saw last week a presentation of the SOLID program. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about this before. Right? That's the program of the guys at MIT that want you to have your own little vault. Your pot is what they call it, the data pot with all your data in it. Flanders will be one of the first regions in the world where they're going to try it out. You can basically add all kinds of information into one of those pots. And HR was also one of the use cases, not just for your learning and development, but also like when you're applying to a company that you don't send them your LinkedIn profile anymore, but that you basically decide these parts of my history, professional history, private history, I'm going to open up my pot and share that with a potential new employer and others will not be shared. And now on LinkedIn, I mean, if you did something five years ago, you did a stupid post, people can still find it there. When all your data is in your solid pot, you can decide, okay, this is something that we're not going to show anymore. So the whole thing of the right of being forgotten, all that discussion could become useless if you have control over your own data again. That, that is, in my opinion, the most critical benefit of the whole blockchain and Web3 part for the consumers. And in HR, it has a, a, a huge benefit. Will they be ready on time? He made it sound like they would be ready on time, yeah. Yeah, he, he was very excited. It was, a, it was I forgot his name. It's going to be pretty soon. Yeah, it's pretty soon. It's a Belgian professor, a very good speaker, and um, he explained it very well. He was very excited. He, he shared that we're going to see this here soon during fall. Mm -hmm. And his name is Ruben Verborg, professor of decentralized web technologies at the Ghent University. Excellent speaker in the domain. And he was very convincing in how it works and how far they, they are at this moment. Yeah, I think the use case catalog you mentioned, the use case to start with and then like run it, that's definitely what's happening as well. And uh, it's exciting to see what Flanders is doing already there, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Pascal, let's go from Flanders to China again. 
You shared with me this week that the metaverse in China is becoming a booming business. Mm -hmm. uh, over here in Europe, a lot of people that I meet still don't understand how the metaverse could be a booming business. Mm -hmm. Tell us what's happening in China and, and hopefully that enlightens us. Yes, well, I don't have all the answers, but uh, I've been very frustrated for the past many months that uh, the whole world has been talking about Meta and forgot to put China on the map there because mm -hmm. there's so much happening. And I think once China will open up, if we go there, we're going to be really, really surprised how much progress they made in many, many aspects. Uh, all of the things we've talked about in the past radar episodes and, and today as well. But I think the one thing that we're missing a little bit, there's a few things and there's a few reasons why we don't look at China. But what we're missing, there's been a, a survey done by the World Economic Forum recently saying that actually the excitement for meta in developing countries is twice as big as in developed countries. And so in China, 78% of the people in that survey are very positive to be immersed into the metaverse on a daily basis in the future. While in Belgium, for example, that was also in that survey, it's only at 30%. Mm -hmm. And so specifically the Generation Z, the young Chinese are extremely looking forward towards that new virtual world. Maybe it's because China has always been a virtual world in a way, but it's interesting to look at that. Now, the reason that we think that is strange is because First of all, crypto trading and mining is banned in China. And so that's already in our mindset. It's like, yeah, but if that's banned, how are they going to use the digital coins and, and, and pay for things and so on? And, and China's pushing that digital currency themselves, the central bank digital currency. So in many people's mind, it's limiting. And when you look at NFTs, they're very regulated in China, uh, specifically when it's about financial NFTs, you need license trading and so on. So they're, they're very strict on what is possible and not possible. And what you see with NFTs, uh, it's really about ownership of digital assets as a collectible. And so China is really going into not using these NFTs, not as an investment, but more as something that you collect for yourself. And that means, and that's the interesting part of it, and there's translation we often don't make, is that you need a lot of creation on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so Chinese are going crazy on creating stuff and then using basically NFTs as a way to, to give people the option to buy this stuff in the digital virtual world. And so there's a lot of cool stuff being created in China. But the reality is because of this regulation, many people think China's just taking control over the metaverse and nothing's going to happen. And the opposite is true. Even in the government, if you look at it, the 50-year plan, the 14-5-year plan from a year ago, all the underlying technology for the metaverse, I mean, blockchain, AI, if you look at AR, VR, it's all part of the next five-year plan where billions and billions have been invested from the government as well as from companies. So they're building the underlying structure. And of course, I don't need to talk about 5G and, and communication. I mean, that's a given. But most important is that cities are now starting to compete on becoming the number one metaverse city in China. And Shanghai has already, in their next five-year plan, made it very clear that they want to take the lead and become the number one metaverse city in China. And they're actually putting some of their returns of becoming a smart city within their plan through the metaverse. So it's quite interesting to see that this direction is now going to the city government is seeing this as a way to start making money by removing friction and, and giving more transparency in the things we talked about just now. And so this is a, a new way that is going on. But What's most important, of course, you need the industry. And so all the big players in China, 
Baidus, the, the, the Tencents, the Alibabas, the ByteDance from TikTok, uh, I mean, Billy Billy, Kwaisha, all the companies are really into this new direction. And this is not just about copying what Facebook does or doing what, they're all trying to do their own thing. ByteDance, for example, bought a big uh, VR headset company called Pico, and they're releasing this on a massive scale in China now at reasonable prices. Alibaba is going very big on AR to add uh, to the shopping experience so that people, when they go to real offline stores, they can actually put the glasses on, which Alibaba provides at really cheap prices and, and get another layer of information on top of the physical environment. Companies like ByteDance has created a kind of a new world as well, just like uh, Baidu as well. Baidu calls their new world Xirang or Land of Hope. It looks a little bit like the meta world uh, from Facebook. I mean, they're all going in there and adding their flavor of what they're good at. Tencent, of course, in the game industry with Epic, they've gotten 40% of the, the shares there, partnered with Roblox. I mean, there's a lot of things happening. And I don't have time here to go into all these examples but I want to say a little bit why I believe that China could actually lead in the next years in terms of many things in the metaverse. And it has to do with the fact that even 20 years ago, China had avatars and virtual worlds, I mean, with QQ. And so it's very normal for Chinese consumers to actually be in that virtual world. They've been doing it for 20 years. And so on top of that, they've also, with WeChat, been very accustomed to form social groups within the WeChat groups which means going into a certain environment with certain people in a virtual world is, is just natural behavior for many Chinese. You know, in my, my first book, China's New Normal, I explained everything about online merge with offline. And so the big thing about China is all about the real world merging with the virtual world and with Alibaba's uh, shops, the Herma stores, which we visited quite often uh, in China. I mean, this was what it was all about, is how do you merge the online with the offline. And this is just one extra layer. But you feel for many consumers, it's like business as usual, just the next step. That's why maybe here in the West, for us, it's a jump, a leap. For China, it's like a transformation more, more than a disruption. And then try to figure out what's cool and what's happening. And so people are excited. And, and that creates, of course, applications. It creates environments. But then when you look at the underlying infrastructure that you need for it, I mean, if you just look at AI, you look at, look at blockchain, AR, VR, cloud, I mean, China is really leading globally on implementing that into society. I mean, that's what we've constantly been hearing. They're trying to surpass the US when it comes to all of these technologies. And, and so now the big thing will be 5G. And then more importantly, and that's what many people in China said, wait until 6G comes along because we will be the first country. They've announced it officially available 2030. And so that means from 2028, uh, there's going to be test pilots. That means 2025, companies are going to start building products for it. And so many people say to really make the meta useful, I mean, that virtual world where everything seems real, you need 6G. And that is where China's are now betting everything on and, and hoping that they will actually uh, excel in that. For China, it's not so much about recreation of a new universe, a new world. It's more about bringing the virtual world to the real world. And so this, of course, for e-commerce is the number one place where you can make money. I mean, AR, for example, shopping experiences. So there's a lot of things that can happen. You can put advertisement on top of it. If you have IoT, you can make smart cities around it. It's also about travel. It's about real estate. There's things like uh, manufacturing, healthcare. A lot of these industries is about 
real-world industries, and now you bring some of the virtual world into that. That's where they're heading. One of the other things that is also happening, because, Laurence, you were talking about uh, the sentience, and, and, and so in, in, in China, they're really going for hyper-realistic social engagements. So the avatars that they're now creating, the virtual avatars, like the one called Ayai, it's from Alibaba's Taobao, she is an avatar, but you almost cannot see that she's not a real person anymore. I mean, it's so real, and there's a lot of emotion there. And the interesting thing is they want to really add this emotion on top of it so that this virtual influencer can now talk to millions of people on a one-to-one -one basis. And this is what's happening today. And one of the important things, and I think that's where China could actually make a difference, is they're putting everything on voice so they believe that if you want to personalize avatars and personalize the virtual world, the voice is the most important part to get right. As I said before, China is focusing on young generation, Generation Z, who are really looking at going into that creativity, looking at going into that new world of co-creation and so on, on top of a big, big push and direction into 6G, which drives actually the investments of the big companies because they believe that they could be the first country that could actually make a huge difference in making it useful. And so what we should do is uh, look more at what's happening at the case studies or the cases to understand what all these companies are doing, because they're predicting an 8 trillion US dollar market in China in the metaverse. By 2025, 37 million users. And there's already, just this year, there's been like 500 companies, it's actually last year, that have Meta in their brand. And so everything's around Meta, Meta, Meta in China. And nobody's talking about it except me. That's, so I think that's something we need to that's change. That's a unique <laughs> position to be in, Pascal. I just have one question about one of the examples. You share many examples. But at a certain moment, you said when you go to Alibaba, to a store, they give you glasses in the store and then you see other things. Does that mean that in, in the physical retail stores you walk in, you take your little shopping cart and everyone gets like mm -hmm. magic... AR glasses, is that how it works? Yep. So you can either buy them, I mean, they're selling them, these glasses, and then you can customize on your personal needs, or indeed, it could be made available in the store. And I've seen some videos, uh, shots of that, and so you really see, I mean, this is just all in development, but you really see the prices before you even hit the products, okay. before you take the products. So you see also how much you've actually spent in your cart, so if you drive along. So there's all these little things that you just get as little information that really helps you, like, okay, now I've already spent 100 euros, and this, oh, this is on a discount, but what does it mean? And so there's a lot of things, and not just in the food area, it's also in clothes, in the trains, they want to do it on the high-speed trains, where you can find your seat quickly and stuff like that. So, I mean, this is all like gimmicky, but it's being developed and it's being made available. And so knowing China, they're just going to do crazy things again. And people will wear that just because it's fun. Yeah. Probably the cost will be very low. And that, I think, is one of the main issues still with VR. The big companies like ByteDance and, and, and Tencent, they're going into the VR as well. Tencent, by the way, is rumored to create their own VR headset as well. But this is all about gaming and about the virtual world on itself already. This could be really cool to look at China for some examples of how to make money from adding that layer of intelligence. Super. Thanks for that amazing update, uh, Pascal. I'm going to jump back to Laurence. You got really excited about another new technology, uh, more specifically the evolution of senses in technology. What was this about? 
Well, first, I want to add something that Pascal said. He said, like, China has already avatars for 20 years. But Pascal, do not forget the fabulous second life that we had as yep. of uh, 2003. So that's also yeah, and you know, 20 years ago. You know ago. that Chinese were crazy about second life eh? because suddenly <laughs> they could have a second life, which they wanted at that point. <laughs> okay, sorry, Stephen. So, yes, technology and the senses. I saw this really interesting post by David Eagleman, who's a famous neuroscientist and entrepreneur. And he announced the launch of a new product called Neosensory Clarify, which is fascinating because it's a wristband that allows people to hear by feeling vibrations through the wrists. So it's not for deaf people. It's only for people who cannot hear high-frequency sounds. And that is what often happens to when people get older. And so what's super impressive is that it apparently takes the brain about three weeks to combine the information from the ear with the vibrations from the wristband and then to start hearing everything again. It's typical, once you read something about technology and the senses, you see all other things. And then I saw that MIT is developing speakers that are as thin as paper, and you can use it to really wallpaper a room and then have a truly immersive sound. There's Meta that introduced new prototypes for its VR headsets, and it really wants to pass the visual Turing test, which is when virtual reality practically becomes indistinguishable from the real world. Apple has been taking a patent on ultrasonic haptic technology, which is technology that allows users to feel sensations like feeling rain on your face or, or breeze, and it's through uh, the headsets, but also through other devices like handheld controllers. And for me here, the interesting difference is that the Facebook prototypes only focus on the visual part, whereas Apple also has touch. And I think that if you really want to pass the visual Turing test, well, the reality Turing test, then maybe, then, then I think that you will need to go beyond just the visual part. And so these news items for me show two things. First, well, obviously, it's clear that a lot of technology companies are investing in building a second reality that they want to make as real as ours, like Pascal already talked about as well, that they're doing in China, like a real feeling metaverse. But I think that if we want to really make it convincing that we will need to cater to all senses, I think a really working metaverse is not only seeing, but we'll need to include the other senses. And that means that it will not just be one technology, well, several, but the, the most important that we always talk about is the visual technology, but it will be conversions of VR, AR, haptic technology, machine learning, cloud, 5G, probably Web3, and that in the end, We'll just have a new form of internet that will emerge that is probably immersive and as well as one where the user is empowered and in charge of his data, which is uh, the Web3. And I want to conclude by saying that I think it's really interesting that we see this co-evolution of computer senses and human senses because computer senses have also evolved a lot. I, I saw a piece from IBM from 2013. And in that piece, they were saying computers will be able to see and hear and feel. And this is, this is already happening. So the combination of both and that it will end in augmented senses for humans and new ways for humans of sensing things, like being able to hear through vibrations on the wrist, I think that's super interesting. And why? Because the evolution of complex and intelligent life 
has always gone together with the evolution of the ability to gather more information, living things. And even at the super basic level, they need information to survive and to reproduce. And more complex beings like humans, they get that information through our senses. And so what I wonder if we will be able to sense in different ways and if the metaverse will really happen, what that will exactly mean for human evolution. So I thought that was really fascinating. Very fascinating. And, and it's going to create a whole new ethical discussion. I don't know if you saw this a couple of months ago. There was this company that makes uh, bionic eyes and, and then an implant, basically, for people who are blind. So to let them see, to create that sense again. It was very experimental. So you had to pay half a million to get one of those eyes. And then you had a service contract to upgrade the software all the time. So you had a monthly fee. That was basically the model. Now, this company goes out of business and you have like 100 people in the world who have one of those bionic eyes in their body. And the problem is that you cannot get any software updates anymore because the company is gone. Another problem is they want to get rid of the eye because it doesn't work anymore. But there's not a single surgeon in the U.S. that actually wants to take the risk of taking out that eye because they don't know how it works, how it is connected. I bought a lot of stuff, digital stuff and gadgets that work like half-half and then that company goes out of business. That's fine. I mean, you lost the money, but that's it. The moment that they start to put stuff inside of your body and they connect that to the internet, then I think I would prefer that that is an Apple product <laughs> versus a startup that is burning money like crazy that you're not sure if they will stay alive with all their stuff inside of your body. So that, I, that, that is one of the most difficult questions of this industry when you go inside of humans. Yeah, sure. I really wonder how we're going to deal with that. But there's a, really a difference between you have invasive technology and yeah, non-invasive technology. Absolutely. It's like you have these brain-computer interfaces that are chips inside yeah. the brain, and then you have these the mounted brain. headpieces with vibrations. Yeah, and I think <laughs> if I could choose, like you say, <laughs> I would also prefer something that's not inside, because if that company goes out of business, then you're yeah, you're in yeah, trouble. You're doomed. Yeah. Your brain will yeah. vaporize. <laughs> in yeah. terms of uh, go-to-market. great to, to end the podcast on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not going to do that. I would just suggest maybe they start with a less invasive part of a body than an eye. Maybe they could have like sort of tested this out and built trust with another. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, bold. What could you miss? Really bold. Just think about <laughs> yeah. that. Very bold. All right. Well, let, let's go to our last topic to create some Top Gun positive energy. <laughs> we chose. I have your back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk to me, Goose. The last topic, a major depressing topic that we're going to end with. <laughs> uh, it's the story of Coinbase. It's a company that at Nextworks we have a long-lasting relationship with. We actually went to see them before they even got their first office. I still remember that we saw them when it was like three guys and they were pitching their story at us in the offices of their major investor in Riesen and Horowitz. And that was, I think, 2014 or 2013. Most people didn't have a clue. What it was about, some people said, I'm going to try that. And that same day, they bought some Bitcoin for $100. And even though we're in a crypto winter, these people still made a fortune out of that. So joining us on Nextworks Tours can change your life in multiple ways. But now Coinbase is, is of course, the flagship example of a company that is suffering from crypto winter. And it's a full disaster. Julie, give us an update. 
Yes, I just have to add, this is not formal investment advice, as you always see, of course. <laughs> But, uh, no, um, indeed. Uh, was it Brian himself, by the way, that you saw back then, Stephen? Brian Armstrong, the CEO? The sad thing is I don't you remember. You don't remember. I'm very bad at that. <laughs> I don't remember. Probably, try yes. try some technology Probably, yes. for that. Usually those were the founders, <laughs> uh, the, the founding team that we saw. Cool. Yeah, uh, Brian is having indeed uh, less of a, a joyful year, I would say. Um, we grew too quickly is basically what he quoted in a, in a blog post. And I think if you look at how they hired, the numbers are pretty crazy. If you look at in COVID, before the start of 2021, they had 1,250 people. And that sort of ballooned to almost 5,000 people in the latest quarter. And he said, okay, it's now clear that we overhired because they um, have to lay off almost 20% of that. Okay, if you do the math, I get that. It's still more than, than before, but it shows sort of that adaptability again where we were speaking of. It's how do you combine that with the investments in a company that you're also making and how do you stay flexible with all of that? It's, uh, it's fascinating to see. I think also we talked about the great resignation and all the trends and how we can make sure that working is good for people that, uh, as, as Friedrich Anzel also pointed out, like people make the place. How do you make it a good place for them? But on the other hand, what you start seeing is that economic reality is also kicking in and that you have to organize your company as a way more flexible organization to make sure that you can adapt to situations as quickly as that. I think it's fascinating to see, and of course, one of the most volatile industries these days, cryptocurrencies, to see what that means. And more on a global level, this is one industry, but if you put the great resignation next to these layoffs, we saw similar messages from Tesla where Elon Musk is set to also lay off 10% of the people, put the hiring on pause. I mean, I think it's, it's worth mentioning that it's not all like people are running away from their jobs, but it's also just companies trying to figure out What does a new world look like and what is the concept of a company and what is the structure of a company that it's most adaptable to that new reality? You see in those signals and in those mixed movements that it's it's a question going forward. That's just a reality. I think we have to face that. That's not something we get enthusiastic about or get positive energy about. But for me, Frederick's again, big fan. It's really the Tom Cruise of future of work. But people make the plays and making sure that you, you think about that as a company. And as a, as a person yourself as well, I mean, uh, making sure that you like your job, you like your work and contribute to that as well yourself. I think it's not all companies' responsibility to make sure that people have fun. It's also people together that can make a place fun and that can bring that positive energy like the Top Gun effect you mentioned, I think, in the beginning. Yeah. Yesterday, there was in a newspaper that one in five Belgians love their job. That's nothing. That's like 20%. What did the other 80% do? So I would really recommend those people to look, to, to I mean, join you to the cinema, theater, Stephen, <laughs> watch Top Gun and go back with positive energy. Take a holiday, but at least go back as a maverick to your workplace and make sure that you have fun, contribute and do something really, really cool. So with that, I would bring that positive energy back to the workplace, even with the disturbing news of great resignations and layoffs. So I'm so happy that you end with that positive energy and that we're back at Top Gun where we started. So I think this is a nice moment to, to round off this episode of Radar. I want to thank all three of you for being here. I want to thank Peter for his contribution about the D-rounds. And I want to thank all of you for listening again to us in this second season of Radar. This is our last episode for this season. We're going to take a summer break. 
And then we're going to be back in September with new episodes with the same team. In the meantime, if you have questions for us, if you see things that you want to hear our thoughts on, just keep on sending those. We're always happy to, to help you with that. Please give a review on your favorite podcast channel. Tell one friend about Radar and all those things would mean the world to us. So thank you very, very much and hear and see you again in September. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Enjoy summer. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.